This podcast is brought to you by the law firm of Clyde Snow and Sessions, based in Salt Lake City with offices in Oregon and California. For over 65 years, Clyde Snow has represented clients throughout the West. Clyde Snow, serious about solutions. Hello, and welcome to Ripple Effect, a podcast putting water into context. I'm Emily Lewis, your host, and I'm a water attorney here in Salt Lake City, Utah, practicing creative solutions to today's and tomorrow's water problems. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, and welcome to the 30th episode of Ripple Effect. Today is a rather special episode because I have with me as a guest, Devin Mercrola. And Devin is an employee of the Central Utah Water Conservancy District, which is a client of our firm. And um, really, Central is really the backbone of a lot of the water here in the state of Utah. And one of the original reasons for doing this podcast was to kind of make a public record of some of these kind of larger institutional elements uh, of Utah water and to really kind of have a more robust discussion about that. And so um, this is actually my first central episode, but I'm hoping that here in the future, we're going to have um, a lot more that kind of break apart and break down what central does and kind of really uh, bring that discussion to a broader audience. And so for today's discussion, um, I wanted to have Devin here because he is the Bonneville Operations Manager for the Central Utah Project. And in that capacity and in some of his former capacities, he really was in charge of a fairly large element of Central's operations, which is called the Wasatch County Water Efficiency Project, or uh, more affectionately known as WICWEP. And this is a very cool and unique project up in Wasatch County in Heber Valley in Utah. And I'm pretty excited to get into the brass tacks because it's a pretty cool way that Central has approached a number of water issues and kind of really looked at water from a big picture to kind of meet some very specific goals. So with that, we will kind of move into talking about exactly what WICWEP is. But um, before we get there specifically, Devin, could you just tell us a little bit about um, kind of who you are and what your background is and kind of primarily what your role is at Central Utah? Thank you, Emily, for that introduction. I am the operations manager for Central Utah Water. What Central Utah Water does, uh, we essentially uh, collect water um, from the Colorado River and store that and then convey it to customers on the Wasatch Front and provide a supplemental water supply to them. As part of that project, we uh, manage eight uh, dams or, and reservoirs. We have several minor um, diversion dams, over 100 miles of 84-inch plus uh, size pipelines and tunnels. The district also has three water treatment plants. We have two hydroelectric plants, one at Jordan L and one at Olmstead, with a capacity of about 25 megawatts between the two of them. And also a culinary water distribution system from wells out along Utah Lake, uh, the CWP project. So there's a lot of things that we do. Uh, one of the more important ones that I didn't include in that list 
that I think is important is the Wasatch County Water Efficiency Project, which kind of encompasses uh, in a small area, most all of the district's processes and uh, goals in one small project. That project is uh, dear to me because that is where I began my career with Central Utah Water Conservancy District nearly 20 years ago. I like that you brought up WICWEP as kind of like a little microcosm about what the larger Central Utah Water Conservancy District does as a whole. And that's kind of one of the reasons why I wanted to have you here, because it is such a cool example of some kind of creative legal technical and like practical means of meeting some of um, Central's broader goals. Um, so, and I wanna just real quickly though, Devin, before we move into WICWEP, could you explain to, for the listeners, like how many people benefit from Central's water services and how many people that um, Central delivers water to? We know that there are uh, over a, a million people that receive water from uh, our customers the main entities that we deliver water to. We deliver water from uh, Metropolitan Water District in Salt Lake and Sandy in the north, uh, all the way to entities in the south, down to uh, currently Spanish Fork and the Strawberry uh, Water Users Association service area with intent to deliver water down into uh, northern, northern Juab County. So there's a pretty significant population base in that area. And all of those entities that we deliver to provide that service from water that comes from the Central Utah Project. Yeah, it really is the backbone of kind of Utah water. Um, and for the listeners as well, uh, the you know eight dams and, and infrastructure that uh, Devin mentioned earlier in his introduction, most of them were all originally funded through um, the Central Utah Project, which was a federal project. Um, you know, back in the 1960s through you know primarily kind of like the 1990s you know, building some of that large infrastructure that you see here in Utah. And so when you're driving around and you see Jordanelle, um, you see Starvation, um, you see Strawberry Reservoir, you know, those are all Central Utah Project um, dams and reservoirs. And so for those of you who live in the state, I think it's important to also kind of like viscerally connect to kind of what is the infrastructure that we're talking about. Great. Okay, Devin. So if you would, let's kind of dive into kind of WICWEP um, specifically. So can you give the listeners a little bit of kind of like a setting of where the WICWEP project is and kind of like where you, you know, what it looked like um, in the Heber Valley when you first kind of came around and started working on this project? I can do that. In the year 2000 is when I first came in contact with the district and uh, through a private engineering company that I was working with at the time and began to learn about a water efficiency project that several people in the Heber Valley had been working on with Central Utah Water Conservancy District with federal partners to develop a project that would meet some of Central Utah Water's goals. Some of those goals were to conserve water by more efficient application and use. Other goals were environmental goals, which are a significant part of the Central Utah Project, specifically with the WICWEP. One of those goals was to restore flows uh, in the upper Strawberry River, which was uh, the number one highest priority aquatic mitigation measure 
for the strawberry aqueduct and collection system of the Central Utah Project. Another purpose was to provide stream flows and a restoration to the middle Provo River and to provide a replacement water supply from Jordanell Reservoir to the Daniel Irrigation Company. There were, so there were multiple purposes, joint agencies of uh, the Department of Interior, Central Utah Water, our Utah Reclamation and Mitigation Commission, the Bureau of Reclamation, and Wasatch County, together with the irrigation companies, that all of those entities wanted to accomplish with the Wasatch County Water Efficiency Project. One of our visionaries associated with that, we actually lost this year, uh, kind of a sad thing, just a few weeks ago, Claude Hicken, who really was a mastermind of this project, a father to many of the concepts, did pass away and but has left behind uh, something of great value to water users in the Heber Valley and within the Central Utah Water Conservancy District. Great. And sorry for your loss. I had not realized that. Um, can you talk a little bit about kind of what those concepts are? Like how, what are kind of like the bones of how WICWEP actually works and what is the project um, actually achieving kind of from a water perspective and, and what, what have you done to kind of meet some of those multifaceted goals that you mentioned earlier? So one of those first goals was to, of course, restore the Strawberry River in the upper basin. Uh, in order to do that, we had a company that owned the water rights and had for over a hundred years diverted water in a trans-basin diversion and brought that into the Heber Valley. We needed to find a way to replace that water to Daniel Irrigation Company. And one of the ideas of how to replace that was to utilize existing canals. The Timpanogos Canal being a canal that comes from the Provo River right at the base of Jordanell Reservoir and runs down to near Daniel service area on the south end of the Heber Valley. That concept um, became feasible if there was a way to make capacity for that additional water in the canal. Another purpose of the CUP was to uh, conserve water through efficiency measures. So they began talking with several of the irrigation companies in the valley about a conversion of their lands from flood irrigation to sprinkler irrigation. The flood irrigation, historically, uh, acreage in the valley used anywhere from five to seven acre feet of water was diverted from the Provo River and applied to lands in Heber Valley in order to grow crops. The application of that was uneven at times and not super efficient. The proposal with this project was to make the application of that water more even and to have better distribution of the water and reduce the total diversion requirements to meet crop needs in the valley. So essentially trying to, uh, you know, reduce the amount of water needed to actually grow those crops and, and the amount of water diverted from the system to grow the crops and kind of find a more efficient application of that water. That is correct. Mm -hmm. And in doing that, the plan was to store the water that was no longer needed to meet the crop needs into 
Jordanell Reservoir. And then the water that was stored in Jordanell would be released for non-consumptive purposes to meet specific goals. The primary goal was to protect downstream water rights based on the science behind the Morse decree uh, to make sure that water users were kept whole and their water rights were not affected. The next purpose was to enhance uh, wetland areas and to maintain those within the Heber Valley. And another one was to provide additional stream flows into natural streams within the valley that had historically been dry dammed for irrigation purposes so that those streams would now run year round and be able to supply or provide for fish and other environmental habitat. Junction with the WICWEP, there was a, an additional project being uh, undertaken by the Utah Reclamation Mitigation Commission, which was the Provo River Restoration Project. Uh, that project was to take advantage of some of these conserved water amounts and provide a minimum stream flow into the middle Provo River, as well as remove diking that had occurred along the middle Provo River that alleviated historic flooding problems, many of which were created by the Provo River project back when they uh, constructed Deer Creek Reservoir and had trans-basin diversions that came from the Duchesne and the Weber Rivers. Sometimes in the spring, those had caused flooding in the Heber Valley. So they mitigated that by diking the river and channelizing it. That channelizing really had a negative effect on the fish habitat and the environmental resource and the riparian area. And so part of the water efficiency project and this river restoration project were to restore that middle reach of stream about 11 and a half miles to restore that riparian habitat and then utilize these saved waters to meet minimum stream flows uh, through that reach. And that has been done and been successfully done over the last 20 years with the savings of an average of about 30,000 acre feet of water from historic practice in the Heber Valley to today's sprinkler irrigation practice. Great. That, that's a fantastic overview of kind of like the multifaceted approach of kind of what WICWEP does. Um, I, there's a couple things that I kind of like to break down in there because, you know, I think what's so interesting about this project really kind of are some of those brass tacks that you just talked about. And so, you know, I heard you say a couple things that, you know, are really important, you know, one is kind of preserving water rights, you know, that were um, decreed to individual water users through the Morse decree. And so I want to put a pin in that because I kind of want to have a discrete discussion on that. And then two, you know, we talked about kind of some environmental and wetland mitigation along the middle Provo, which, you know, if you're a fly fisherman here in the state of Utah or a fly fisher woman, you know, that's one of the prime reaches that, that people really enjoy fishing and, and recreating in. And then three, really kind of mitigating some infrastructure problems, uh, you know, from the original Provo River project, which, you know, all of those are, are really important goals in and of themselves. But it's pretty exciting to have a project that can kind of do those things together. So I kind of want to maybe break those down a little bit independently if we can. And the first one is, um, I'd like to talk for a minute just about kind of the water rights in the Heber Valley and kind of how that Morse decree works. Because 
for those people who are not, you know, or those listeners who are not, you know, versed in kind of the nitty gritty of water law, I think the concept of decrees is, is a little bit foreign, but is so important to kind of what we do. And so can you just kind of talk a little bit about the Morris Decree and the water rights in the Heber Valley? The Morris Decree is interesting and has been an interesting study for me as I worked with farmers and figured out what water rights they had and how we can improve their, their use of those water rights to increase their crop yields. The Morris Decree is unique in that typically water law, we have a, a priority system where first in time is first in right. Yet on the Provo River, there were individuals in the Heber Valley that were in a way second in time and somehow became first in right under this court decree. There was at the time a lot of uh, debate and discussion about how the Provo River system worked, where, how different water rights were affected based on different uses. The Morse decree essentially in a way reversed this priority-based system and broke the Provo River up into a couple of different divisions and then into districts within the upper division of that. They had a division that is now below the, the current Deer Creek Reservoir and one that was then upstream of, of Deer Creek Dam. And within each of those, they gave essentially the full right to the use of the Provo River. In the upper valley, that allowed individuals to divert ahead of people with water rights on the lower valley that had potentially come earlier in time. Okay. So it's kind of, and those people who are not, for listeners who are not as familiar with the prior appropriation doctrine, this is really a novel interpretation of how to allocate water rights because, you know, decrees are a pretty common tool used to allocate and define water rights between water users. You know, basically a court comes in and says, you know, water user X, you have X amount of water or you have X CFS flow or acre feed or acreage. You know, they all kind of do it on different um, different standards, but the underlying principle is essentially like, if you got there first, you get the water right first. But under the Morse decree, you know, as you've indicated, it really takes a novel approach by kind of looking at the system as a whole, and then kind of looking at the, hyd the hydrology and, and kind of more doing water rights on a, hyd on a hydrology basis, correct? It does. Mm -hmm. And as I looked at that, I didn't get a lot of excellent explanation as to the hydrology but as we've looked at the hydrology, we understand the wisdom in those that set the system up this way. And the idea was that if a lot of water could be diverted in the Heber Valley and put into the groundwater or into the ground, that the ground would act as a natural reservoir and would release that water back to the stream at a later time. So if that water in the springtime, when there were high, high flows in the Provo River, ran directly downstream to higher priority users, the water would get there and there would be excess water even for their need. If that water was applied to the land in, in Heber Valley, uh, that water would not run down at that time. But then later in the, in the seasons, in October, September timing, if the water ran down in the spring and in a higher total volume, in the fall, there would be a lower volume available uh, to the stream. 
but if they applied that to the land and stored it in an underground reservoir, they found that in August and September, there was significantly higher flows in the Provo River downstream of the, of the Heber Valley. Mm -hmm. So essentially kind of like, instead of letting the river run its natural course, what the Morse Decree did is they basically said, you know, um, there's kind of a saying that instead of first in time and right, it's highest in time is in right. <laughs> but essentially what they said is instead of letting those high flows in the spring run down when there's excess water in the system, we're going to divert it, apply it in Heber Valley. And basically the Heber Valley acts kind of like a sponge, you know, and then it, and then it basically kind of leads to flatten out that curve of that spring flow. So the spring flows are applied to the, you know, the ground in Heber, it acts as a sponge and then like trickles down to the river system kind of later in the season when those natural flows would not naturally be there. And so it's kind of a really ingenious way to kind of make your water season a little bit more stable, you know, back in the days when they didn't have huge infrastructure like we have. That's correct. And being able to meet multiple purposes with the same water mm -hmm. was a it was a higher beneficial use to a, a very limited resource in the state of Utah to make an optimum use of that resource. And we continue to do that today with a lot of resources as we use it more than once mm -hmm. or try to, to optimize the beneficial use of that. So one of the concerns with the water efficiency project was that if we no longer applied that to the ground into this groundwater reservoir that returned to the stream later in the year, that that water would be lost to downstream water right owners. Right. And so essentially, if we move to sprinkler irrigation to make more efficient applications, like what would that do to the hydrology of the, of the, of the river system? Yes, it would run that water straight down the system when no one needed it in the spring. And then there would be a reduced uh, outflow from the groundwater in the, in the August, September, and, and fall months of the year. So one of the parts of the WICWEP was a plan to store that water in Jordan L Reservoir to develop a model that showed a historic uh, return flow pattern had the water been applied to the land and then to use Jordanelle Dam and its controls to release that water to the Provo River in a similar pattern as that water would have returned under a flood irrigation scenario. Instead of using that water as an over-application for irrigation, is that water could be used for uh, stream flow and enhancement to that stream flow in the middle Provo River. So there was a trade-off of over application to the land to then storing in Jordanelle and using that water to provide for increased fish and wildlife habitat along the Middle Provo River. Yeah, that's what I think is so genius about this because it's, um, and this is what I love about water law is that, um, you know, we all deal with the same basic building blocks, but how those blocks are applied to account for like local conditions is infinitely fascinating. <laughs> and, you know, here's this case where, you know, we basically looked at this like 1880, I mean, when was the Morse Decree? 1880? Is that when it came out? I don't no, remember. No, 1920. 
Oh, I'm way off. I apologize. Wrong, wrong decree. <laughs> 1920. But practices, you know, you know, but there are priority dates in the Morse decree back, you know, to the late 1880s. And so these practices that had been in, in place, you know, um, you know, quite, 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 quite some time ago, you know, we were able to kind of look at those, see what happened, look at our modern infrastructure, and then kind of see how we can work within that system to achieve those same goals. And that's what I think is so neat about this project. The on the ground impact is the same um, in that everybody gets to grow their crops and that the, the, the system has, you know, water in the later part of the season. But the mechanism that we do that is just so is so different with the use of a large dam and controlled controlled releases. And um, I just think it's a really cool model of kind of how big water really works. Yes, it is that model. And you bring up on the ground impacts. I think that's an interesting thing that that I got to deal with early and that some of the planners of this project had to deal with early. And what happened was if, if you were a farmer in Heber Valley and had historically diverted one CFS per 60 acres all year or all irrigation season and, and one CFS to 40 acres in the May and June time period, you may have seen that added up to seven acre feet of water over a five month period. And many of the people here understood they had seven acre feet of water historically under their water right. And with the implementation of the WICWEP, we were telling them, we are now going to give you three acre feet of water instead of seven acre feet of water. That was a challenge and, and still has been for many individuals thinking, wait, why are you taking away four acre feet of my water? Or are you taking away four acre feet of my water? Really, um, after implementation in 20 years, they've realized we still have all the water we need to irrigate our acreage. We are just that much more efficient. One of the things that we found uh, in our first five or six years, we did crop yield studies to see how this project may have been impacted crop yields with half the water that they historically had. And there were very few farms that increased by less than 50% of their historic yields. And many farms that, in, that more than doubled their historic yields on their crops. Um, two reasons for that. One is they were able to get more even application where historically some of the rocky ground the water simply disappeared into the ground and they weren't able to get an even distribution on their crops. The other is that in addition to the decreed water rights that they had, they were able to acquire a supplemental water supply and that water lasted them a full season now, where in years past, many, many years, uh, irrigators were not able to irrigate uh, through the end of June, uh, just due to climatic a variation. So those are the ones that saw 200 to 250% increase in their crops. And so now those same people that wondered, why would I reduce the amount of water I use are understanding and have, and are excited that they have a, a more efficient way and can claim they have helped provide environmental benefit along with the increased yields and efficiency that they 
they get to experience. Yeah, it really is a win-win for everybody. It's a pretty, it's a, I think a really good success project. That's kind of why I wanted to have you on because it's such a good story to tell. So kind of on that front, Devin, you know, you've done a great job of talking about the kind of the mechanics of, of the WICWEP project. Would you talk a little bit about how kind of the legal side works? Like, you, you know, you talk about having those, you know, farmers in the area who were hesitant at first to go from seven acre feet of water, which for those who are not, you know, listeners who are not um, frequent water um, geeks, seven acre feet of water per acre is a very high duty value. That's a lot of water to put on an acre of land. How does WICWEP um, work with those water users to kind of execute that goal? Like, do you guys do contracts? Like, what is the, you know, how are you making that arrangement with the local water users? That is a question I still ask myself today. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. In in this project, uh, we did have several partners and uh, several cooperating agencies to work with us and to help. Of course, uh, Central Utah Water Conservancy District was one of the leaders there, and we had our Soil Conservation District and the Natural Resource Conservation Service, and of course the Mitigation Commission, uh, Mark Holden and his team, and then Reed Murray and his team with the Department of Interior. Uh, At the time, I remember Brent Reese uh, with the Bureau of Reclamation, Uh, they worked with us. And Wasatch County, Mike Davis at the time was hired as a uh, water manager for Wasatch County. He is now the the manager for Wasatch County. And then our irrigation companies. Many of them had been up in the middle of the night for way too many hours all summer long, uh, cleaning moss, trying to force water onto their crops, trying to make a living. And uh, we have 10 irrigation companies that we work very closely with in the valley. And we had to sell to them that we could help them manage provide funding for on-farm distribution systems, sprinkler systems, and manage the water in a way that they could improve their crop yields. There were some naysayers. There were some very excited about the opportunity and some that just pushed and worked through both groups to make, make it a reality here. We ended up installing over 60 miles of new pipeline in the Heber Valley to fully replace two canals. We still utilize two of the canals, provide water to about 17,000 acres of land. We have 18 miles of canal that we rehabilitated and built 10 pump stations, and then worked out an arrangement with the companies to assist in building that, and then assist them in the long-term operation and management of that. And that's where I came in with Central Utah Water. I, with the project, I actually began working with the irrigation companies and coordinating with Central Utah Water. And once the project, those facilities I just mentioned were constructed, I was hired by Central Utah Water to coordinate operations and, and help those companies manage their water supplies. I think one of the biggest successes, I came into the project for one reason, and that was so that I could work with farmers and help them raise crops. Uh, Unfortunately, in the Heber Valley over 20 years, almost 40% of that cropland now has has changed to other uses from uh, recreational farms to residential subdivisions and and commercial development, which has been a hard thing for me to see, but it is now the backbone of growth in Heber Valley that provides 
water for that economic development is is this project. Yeah, so basically, because remember now, you know, you guys don't really own the water rights in the valley. You know, the, the irrigation companies are those that actually own the water rights, you know, those decreed rights for the Morse decree. And so, you know, kind of the enticement to, to kind of do this project and meet those multiple goals that you have uh, identified, you know, of um, habitat restoration and efficient application really required a lot of infrastructure investment, not just on the dam side, but, you know, like really making sure that, um, you know, you could have the, um, the pipes and the canals and the systems in place to really execute the goals of the project. And so I think that's another aspect I think that's so cool about this project is that, um, you know, there's a lot of canal companies in the state of Utah and, and they range from, from small to big and all, all flavors. But Heber Valley is kind of like this one big wired machine these days. <laughs> and um, that's what I think is neat about it. And so, um, you know, so as you guys have grown and developed this infrastructure in the valley and you move from, you know, farming to agriculture, farming and agriculture to kind of more other uses, you know, what are you seeing as kind of some of the challenges in terms of, you um, you know, you, you had your initial goals for the project and now you have these new uses. Um, what do you see as some kind of the challenges of making that transition? The challenges started off uh, worse than they are today. Uh, some of the biggest challenges were uh, protecting infrastructure and then just changing use patterns and working with farmers. We had a lot of them that originally they wanted to use every drop of decreed water they had available to them. So we said, okay, how do you want to use your water? And we would deliver it that way. It didn't take many years until uh, the education process made them realize they didn't want to get up and move a hand line or wheel line enough to use as much water as they used to. Mm -hmm. And so they conserved that back. But uh, still, that was a scheduled water use that we were able to maintain a, a constant flow uh, 24 hours a day and provide that use. But one of the bigger challenges we've had is in that change is the use pattern changes to a, a nighttime use mm -hmm. as recommended even by our, our state leaders um, to be more efficient on lawn and garden um, and less daytime use. And so that creates a peak peaking on a system that was designed to deliver a consistent flow rate. And so we have had to adjust uh, many of our facilities by first adding uh, variable frequency drives on pumps to meet variable demands, and then more recently reconstruct in cooperation with Wasatch County and the Department of Interior our regulating ponds and enlarge those by 10 times. We just completed this project last year, a project fully funded by uh, our irrigation companies and their shareholders to enlarge ponds for regulating storage so that they can uh, allow their shareholders, our cities, uh, service districts to utilize water at night uh, for their customers and to not use water during the day or a minimal amount of water during the day. Uh, that has been one of the significant challenges. We've worked with many of those companies to help uh, amend their articles and bylaws um, as companies uh, to assist them in this transition of ag from agriculture to now metered uh, secondary water use. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot more management required to do that than there was to schedule um, so many field heads for a 12-hour time period on an agricultural field. So we do see those challenges. We have been meeting them. We have a new, uh, we have a good area manager in that area, uh, Roger Pearson, that that continues to work with those companies. And we find the cities and the service districts have developed policies working with Central Utah Water to manage um, this system and the changes to this system to provide for that growth and that change in use. So those partners are really the key element in that in making it successful. It's not something we could do on our own for sure. Yeah, and I also think too, just from an outside perspective, when I've worked with you guys on WICWEP projects, I've been really impressed with the role that technology has played in helping you guys do so. You know, your ticket schedule program and, and your, um, you know, your mapping and GIS for what's going on in the valley is, is pretty impressive in terms of coordinating. You know, it's basically coordinating eight different irrigation systems, which are, you know, independently in and of themselves, you know, complex machines, and then you put them all together and, um, you know, kind of spit out relevant information or have the whole valley kind of run on a run on the same page. And, and so I think that's a, a really cool aspect from an outside perspective, kind of when I come in and see what you guys do is just how well, not only do you have all these partner agencies working together, but you also have kind of like adopted technology to kind of help you do that. But I don't know if that's something that you see as a, as, as a you know, high point, but from an outside perspective, you know, I think that's a, a cool thing as well. and something that could be replicated elsewhere. Yes, that GIS became critical to just our daily operations. I think each staff member in the, in the Heber office daily, when they walk in, one of the first things they do is they open up that mapping and the links that have been set up, the, the field schedules are now available online. Um, individuals can, can make changes, can see what, what water they have, what water scheduled on their field and how to use it. And that technology is a, an enormous benefit just in, in being able to manage. And it's, it's a pretty simple technology um, if, if you use it and, and get to learn it. So, and it appears the water users really do appreciate that type of, of use now. It's a, it's a different world. We went from paper maps and, and printed spreadsheets to try to monitor and, and help people know when to use water to now the majority of our water users just open on their phone. They click on a, a link and they can see their water schedule. Mm-hmm. They want to change it. They, they can either send an email or make a phone call and change that schedule. Um, and then that automatically updates the calls for water. It, it is a unique system, but it is changing as technology changes. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's neat. It's, it's, it's just kind of fun to see something really work in practice. You know, there's always a lot of talk about things that could happen out in the field and then to see something really work and, you know, not only achieve its original goals, um, but kind of adapt with the times and, and meet new goals, I think is, is just really exciting and a good thing for us to kind of like look at and model, you know, as we look at other water challenges across the state. So. Well, Devin, do you have anything that you didn't get a chance to cover that you wanted to talk about WICWEP? There's a lot of things about WICWEP and a lot of things I like to brag about uh, because <laughs> it's, it's where I started. Uh, it's what I love. I, I got to meet so many incredible people because I got to be out on their farm 
helping them lay out where a pipe's going to go and looking at what the soil types were and what's going to be the best nozzle, whether they're raising grass or barley or alfalfa. Um, it's, it's just been an amazing benefit for the people here and now for uh, the growth that's occurring. I think some of our goals to improve irrigation efficiencies, uh, that clearly happened. It increased crop yields significantly in the valley. Um, we've conserved water that now can be used. Uh, the upper Strawberry River above Strawberry Reservoir runs its natural flow now year round. The middle Provo River that used to be dry dam uh, with very few fish in it now has over 30 times the, the fish loading and is heavily used by fishermen. It's, it's amazing to see. Um, the water management has improved for these companies. Uh, we continue to work with them and, and we get to work with the people that are in the valley. We are protecting the downstream water rights. To date, we've not had a complaint that, that the project there has had a negative impact to stream flows downstream. Uh, matter of fact, our, our river commissioner that we worked closely with, Stan Roberts, for years has told us he thinks this has benefited the stream flow downstream based on, based on that model. Uh, it's really improved the manageability of water in the state of Utah. We've really minimized and, and kept cost to the water users low um, for a lot of the features that they use. And, and that goes out to Central Utah Water and how they managed and planned to fund this project for, for meeting those environmental uh, purposes of the Central Utah project. The groundwater and wetlands really have, from their base, base levels, have not seen a negative impact. We've been able to use some of the conserved water to, to mitigate those. So overall, those that thought out this project worked hard to make it happen. I see it, it was a huge success, and I've been grateful to be a part of it and uh, thankful for all those that sacrificed and worked and committed to make it happen. So, and thank you for your time today, Emily, letting me spout off a little bit. Um, yeah, and that's honestly, that's such a great summary, Devin, and I so appreciate that because there are just so many awesome success stories and, you know, water at times can just be a, a kind, you know, a daunting conversation to have. And so, you know, part of having this podcast is to also kind of break into and look at those things that really work well. And um, WICWEP is one of those. And so I'm really, I'm really thankful that you've been able to be here today and kind of talk us through that. And, and I hope to have several, you know, central podcasts about specific aspects of, you know, the broader Central Utah Water Conservancy District operations and the Central Utah Project, because there's a lot of those success stories um, across the state. And I think it's a really good opportunity to kind of share those. Yes. And we appreciate that you've started these podcasts. There have been several issues that, that we've enjoyed learning about and hearing about from different people. So thank you. Emma. Great. Well, Devin, I wish you well, and I'm sure I will have you back on here again. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Have a good day. Nothing said in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. This podcast was produced by Mackenzie Nichols. Find Ripple Effect on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening.